0: I, th- I think the only reason that I did uh, take so much risk in in um, you know, doing such an accelerated rehab after having after having the uh, the hamstring graft surgery um, was because it was the Olympics. You know, it's 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 once every four years, it's the pinnacle event in our sport. And you're right, like there's that fear of well, you know this might be my last Olympics or this just, you know, I don't know what's going to happen another four years down the the line. And, and, you know, this is to my mind, like how I justified it to myself was this is the only event that it's worth taking this level of risk on for. Um, But, you know, other people, other athletes in, in different sports, like it's, you know, it's the same for everyone. Regardless of their level of sport, they've got, they've got something that they're fixated on. And they've got something that they're completely motivated by and internally driven to um, succeed at. And if there's that risk that they might not get to even make an appearance there, it's that's something that is, um, I suppose, like pretty frightening for a lot of
1: athletes. That was Brody Summers. I. I'm Curtis Mansfield, and this is the Hips and Dips podcast. The international podcast tour continues. This week, in rather convoluted fashion, we are venturing to Finland to catch up with Australian athlete Brodie Summers. The name Brodie Summers seems to have been lifted straight from an episode of Baywatch. Surely, Brody was destined to be a surfer, paddleboarder, or apply his trade with a frisbee or hacky sack. But no, if you're unfamiliar with Brody, then start thinking less sand and thinking more snow. As Brody is Team Australian Winter Olympian in 2014 and 2018, both times for mogul skiing. To date, Brody has donned the green and gold in over 40 World Cups and six World Championships. But Brody's career is not all about quantity, it's also very much about quality. A seventh place finish at the 2013 World Champs in Vos set Brody up for a 13th place finish on his Olympic berth in 2014 over in Sochi. Success followed with two bronze medals in the 2017 World Cups setting Brody up for the 2018 Olympics in Korea before injury hampered his medal bid. A recent highlight for him has to be his second place finish at the 2020 World Cup in Sweden with the 2022 Winter Olympics less than a year away. I am interested to see where Brodie's head is at post Covid lockdowns and injuries. I think the concept of an Australian skier fascinates me, especially one who's had success on the world stage. Before I get Brody on the podcast let me just remind you all to check out the Instagram which is at hips underscore and underscore dips with a z for some great content from Brody and all of my past guests. And if you're new to the podcast go to social media drop me a message I'd love to hear your thoughts and where you listen to the pod where in the world and what you do when you're listening. Right I'm hoping Brody has finished catching some waves I mean snow and is ready for us. So ladies and gentlemen I give you Brody Summers. Okay, Brody, welcome to the pod.
0: Thanks very much. Thanks for having me on.
1: Yeah, you're very welcome. Um, Of course, you're someone who's uh, excelled in recent years in winter sports. And uh, interestingly enough, here in the UK, we finally got some snow. So I think it's very topical that we got you on this week uh so to start with we ask everyone this very basic question but kind of how has the 2020 experience really affected your health and by which i'm talking about your physical mental and and social well-being and particularly in your case i'm quite interested to see what it's like as an australian uh but obviously an australian who travels the world with his sport
0: um yeah well yeah thanks again for having me on um yeah to to start off with uh, 2020 has been a I can't really complain. It's actually been, you know, that there, obviously there's been some, some pretty major kind uh, global events um, that have taken place, uh, particularly with the pandemic. But um, I, I suppose being in Australia, we've been somewhat insulated uh, to it compared to many other parts of the world. So um, being in Australia, we we uh, were locked down pretty hard at the start of the year, and I uh, ended up. Um, getting set up with like a home gym setup, which w- which was great, and I just spent a lot of time. I was I was doing my last semester at university as well, so I was basically either studying at my desk or downstairs in the garage lifting weights um, for the first few months of the year, um, which to me was you know, pretty good. It kind of set me up well for for the rest of the the year in terms of our uh, technical skill based training, um, and we we went from. From there, we were able to do some, some uh, water jumping and then, and then get on snow uh, during the, the Australian winter. We, we did um, lose some, some training opportunities that we would usually have. Particularly in, uh, in May, we would usually go to Canada and train for three weeks there. And then also in um, like September, October, we would spend three weeks in Zermatt in Switzerland every year. Um, so we, we, we had to forego those opportunities, but, um, overall, I think we were able to kind of make the, the best, uh, the best out of the situation that we had. Uh, and we sort of, we've come into, to this world cup season feeling collectively, I think like we've prepared pretty well and, and everyone's feeling pretty, pretty good about where we are. Um, so yeah, I think, I think, um, yeah, like I said, kind of good, um, Good training performance and and feeling like I've been able to kind of take care of what what I need to mostly kind of correlates to me being pretty happy uh, in the long run. So, um,
1: yeah, yeah, no, I mean that's like um, a pretty good place. Yeah, I and mean, that's obviously class. And you, uh, as you alluded to already, Australia was quite a unique country. So you and New Zealand probably did fairly well out of the whole epidemic compared to other countries. Uh, so obviously, from from the UK, we ob- we observe quite a lot of your sport. So we've had obviously you had the rugby came back quite early um, and you were having crowds of sort of 30 40 000 when in england you were having well no no crowds or maximum like a few hundred people and then obviously you had test matches for the cricket as well so from the outside your sport seemed to be reasonably good but what's interesting for you is you do a sport which isn't really based in australia there's not much skiing opportunities in sydney i imagine so You've had to, in an ideal world, you'd have flown to the epicenters, really. You'd been going to the US, Canada, um, Northern Europe. You've been going to space like Italy and Japan, all places which have had their problems with, um, with COVID. So, yeah, as much as Australia has been great for you, so it's a, it's a fact. So if you'd have been a rugby player, you'd be laughing probably. You've done, you've done pretty well. But the fact you have to travel so much, I imagine, would have really hampered your, your season
0: yeah yeah potentially um i'm sure i'm sure those uh like you said with with some of those other sporting disciplines like it probably would have been the envy of much of the rest of the world with um with uh how they were able to sort of like you know, go largely uninterrupted at least in the latter part of the year um but yeah i mean we were yeah like i said we were we were pretty pretty adaptable in in terms of our training um we were we we ended up going to some places that (laughs) i never thought skiing would take me like like um darwin in the northern territory of australia um we we ended up going there for like a two-week strength and conditioning camp uh but it was more just a kind of a roundabout way to get from new south wales where we'd been training on snow um up into queensland where we have like a a it's a jumping skill- based um, facility to train yeah. up there but I don't know if you heard we had we had state border, border closures in Australia so it was kind of yeah. it was a bit convoluted trying trying to get from one place to the next and making sure that we were you know sort of doing it all you know by the book and and checking all the right boxes uh, we ended up yeah so we, we went we finished skiing in New South Wales and then the only real so it was either the options were, go to Queensland and spend two weeks in a hotel quarantine scenario before we were allowed out to train or go to Darwin and live normally and they were covid free as far as we knew at the time we were up there which was kind of nice you know we'd we'd come from come from Victoria and New South Wales where restrictions were, were pretty strenuous at times so yeah we trained really hard physically and we got ourselves prepped and then um and then we were allowed to go into Queensland and and train there for a few weeks and work on our jumps before um before coming over to Finland
1: where I am now uh, yeah class um, it's uh, it's funny a lot of my guests have spoke about perhaps on the benefits to having those lockdowns particularly in terms of recovery and um, strength and conditioning and I mean one of your one well, you do various parts of scheme but your main one is the moguls I believe which is a uh, which I just start off by saying is is mental as a sport um, <laughs> the first scene I think it was, <laughs> 2010 maybe, maybe 2006, one of the Winter Olympics, seeing the moguls going down and it's basically what 10 seconds of knee torturing bends followed by some sort of dangerous trick <laughs> followed by more knee torture and then there's a finish line and that's, that's basically the sport. So for <laughs> someone like you who must take so much toll for your knees and for your joints, it actually must be quite nice to have that period perhaps where you can have slightly longer recovery than you probably planned for and then potentially that could Prolong your career in the long term.
0: Um, I, I'd say, yeah, probably yes and and no. It's kind of it's a funny one. Um, like you said, yeah, the, the sport is like to most people in the outside looking in. It's it's a most people will say, why the hell would you even do that? You know, <laughs> like it's <laughs> it, it takes its toll on the body, but um, but uh, particularly in the, in the knees and the back, especially. But um, it's, it's sort of one of those things as well. Like whilst it's good to get. significant amount of recovery time at the same time there's also that risk that if you don't maintain that minimum level of um regular loading that when you do then get back into it um your body can almost kind of go into shock so it was it was something that we actually had to be really mindful of because we did have uh those long long periods of time in between on snow training um where we we yeah, we weren't getting that kind of you know, it, uh, real like impact stimulus. Like we try and replicate it in the gym to some extent, but there's, there's sort of only so much you can do to really, to really get that loading right for the body. So when we did eventually get back on snow after those long periods of time, it was, um, it was something we, we had to be really mindful of and be quite careful of and just kind of gradually ease ourselves back into to like a, a full training load again.
1: Well, yeah, and that's, so, that's, that's really important for sport in general. I mean, obviously, here in the UK, we haven't got much exposure to like skiing and stuff, but people who had lockdown and then went straight back into running or, um, or cycling, so their knees became very weak, their ankles became very weak, and then suddenly they've gone back to running or playing rugby or hockey or football, and then their knee joints just aren't strong enough to take that amount of change of direction and stuff. So you have to be really careful, you build it up gradually. And I think i them speaking to a physio yeah. a few weeks ago, and they were saying that the rate of those kind of, or at least the, the change in proportion for injuries, the amount of people who are coming in with like blown knees or blown ankles, all caused just by overtraining far too quickly. So I can tell you understand yeah. that. And we are going to get into a lot more about your injuries later on. So I think I'll save that. For now, let's do our, this little tradition we start on this podcast, which is this little ice breaking, pardon the pun, um, quiz. Uh, which you've been doing every week so i've it's i said i've as i said so far brody's is basically an excuse for me to come up with some sort of pun um and then build a quiz around it so this week i've uh, tried to take some inspiration from your life on the snow so i had the idea for a quiz called average snow's gym uh (laughs) dodgeball but uh that that was rubbish that was rubbish don't worry (laughs) Uh, But I've gone with a different quiz, and it's called uh, There's No Business Like Snow Business. And basically, I've got for you... How many i have got on the count? One, two, three, four. I've got eight uh, blockbuster blockbuster films about snow. Uh, And we're going to play higher or lower based on their box office figures, okay? Okay. Okay, so we're going to start off with the film called Snow Dogs uh disney classic Uh, and i can tell you right now that made 115 million dollars okay so higher or lower the film home alone
0: i'm gonna go with higher
1: (laughs) it was higher uh 476.7 million dollars (laughs) um which actually surprised me a bit because i was thinking maybe that was a slow burner in the uh, box office but made a lot of money later on but no, so that's that's there. so next up we have eddie the eagle
0: oh uh i remember i remember when that came out there was like it was quite a lot of hype about it. i'm gonna go with higher
1: uh well, you'd be wrong it was uh oh, no. it was quite a lot lower it was only a tenth no. of the sum. for 46.2 uh, million dollars
0: Oh no, um, that's a bad start. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that was um, that's a surprise actually. Because I remember that being quite big in the cinema, I agree. But maybe it was I just remember being hearing like, so much uh, about it. Might have just been big in like the UK and Australia and stuff. Maybe it didn't really do very well in America.
0: Possibly in just in the sporting community as well. Maybe I'm just like especially winter sport. Maybe I just heard yeah, I mean, it's talking right about it's,
1: it. I think if any skier hasn't seen that film, any English-speaking <laughs> skier hasn't seen it. i will be surprised. <laughs>
0: I mean, would you believe it? I actually haven't seen it.
1: Yeah. Actually, I haven't <laughs> seen either. I don't know why I even mentioned it. <laughs> Moving on. Next up, uh, this is a film I definitely have seen. Uh, big fan of Cool Runnings.
0: Oh, that's a great one. I oh. again, it's like it's like such an iconic one. I like I have, I've got to go with higher.
1: I uh, was higher. Uh, one hundred and fifty-four point <laughs> nine million dollars.
0: That was close. Uh,
1: no. <laughs> oh, I mean, what? What, what was actually, Snow Dogs again? Oh, Snow Dogs was one hundred and fifteen. Okay. And then you had Home Alone was four seven six. Eddie the Eagle forty six point two, and then Cool Runnings says so one five four point nine. So, higher or lower than Cool Runnings, the film Everest.
0: Uh, higher. <laughs> i going yeah. with the same response every time. <laughs>
1: <laughs> There's a pattern here. Uh, yeah, that yeah, it seems to be working out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I a... forget out how to hack the game. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that was a two hundred and three point four million.
0: Okay.
1: Uh, next up, we're going for a Christmas classic in Jack Frost.
0: Mm. Oh, higher. <laughs>
1: Uh, no that was lower uh, No, nah, uh, uh,
0: my hack doesn't work anymore
1: no, that was uh, <laughs> 34.6 million okay. <laughs> uh, okay so higher or lower than Jack Frost the film Frozen that's higher for sure that is higher um, the figure I've got written down here I think might be wrong mm. this is a crazy amount of money
0: it's, it's a big number right
1: it's a very big number it apparently it yeah. made 1.28 billion
0: I, I I believe it I remember like I mean like it, it you couldn't go anywhere and and not see something about it or I guess maybe yes you know, if you're around family who you have young kids and things like that maybe you're a little bit more exposed to it but um yeah I remember I remember there being like that that made quite a, a wake there was a lot of lot of uh interest in that
1: well yeah I mean if I did the maths I think it made more money than all the other films put together roughly. So that's a lot of money uh, and then finally somewhat probably anticlimactically based on that sum of money uh, <laughs> higher or lower mighty ducks
0: I, f- I feel like you just gave me the answer is it lower
1: <laughs> it's a lot lower yeah that was only 50.8 million
0: yeah okay. um, <laughs> only so 50.8 million
1: so i wasn't I actually. Count- next to once... one point something billion <laughs> yeah. once again i forgot to count uh, how many you got uh so i think you got <laughs> about five we'll go with five five right. out of eight which is pretty good yeah
0: i wasn't keeping track either No, so passed, that, was, it uh, like.
1: that was a new family game show no business like snow business i, uh,
0: I kind of like average snow's gym i reckon, did I reckon you? You, we can play
1: we can play we can play a game of average snow's gym as well if you want uh what's
0: what's involved well,
1: <laughs> The name's pretty good. The uh, game's not so much. Basically, I've got a list here of countries around the world uh, which record an average snowfall of zero. And I want you to tell me if these countries have snow or no snow. Okay. Okay. It's got nothing to do with the gym, which is a shame. I tried to combine gym and snow, though. I failed. (laughs) So uh, first up, we have Spain.
0: Oh, they have snow. I've skied there. We had World Championships there in 2017.
1: There you go, yeah. Snow, correct. Next up, the Virgin (laughs) Islands.
0: I'm going to go with no snow.
1: Uh, There is no snow. Uh, How about Fiji? (laughs) No snow. No snow. What about Australia?
0: Snow. (laughs) Yeah,
1: a, <laughs> took a long time to think. That I one. got the
0: cheat sheet for that one. <laughs>
1: yeah. um, Ecuador.
0: that's got to be nice, no snow.
1: That is snow. There's uh, snow. It turns um, yeah. out the the key to this quiz is just think if it's got a mountain, because that's generally where you will find the snow. Uh, Actually, there
0: because they grow a lot of coffee there, right? So high yeah. altitudes, so more yeah, like. Um,
1: yeah, I forget what it's called. There is quite a tall mountain there as well. Uh, I think mean, they grow the the um, coffee down the base of it. Uh, yeah. What about? Uh, I won't do them all because I've got time. Last one, uh, <laughs> India. Snow. <laughs> yes, snow. So that was a uh, average snows, gym uh, <laughs> After we played, no business like snow business. So two right. for the price of one. There. A couple of weeks ago, I did a good quiz. You'd have enjoyed. It was about yeah. Bob saying. And again, yeah. the quiz was called Bob Sled In or Bob Sled Out, all about sports in yeah. the Olympics. But uh that's for nice. another day. Right,
0: moving on. I like yeah, all right. <laughs> Very creative with those names, by the way. Yeah, that's <laughs> it's good. It's yeah.
1: yeah, well, I mean this I think mean, this is now the sixth quiz I've done on a podcast. Um, yeah. and I'd say they're slowly getting worse. So if you enjoyed that one, if you go back <laughs> six episodes and find find some belters. All right.
0: Okay. i'll do that. Uh, i've got plenty of time on my hands whilst i'm here so i'll, I'll make sure to do that
1: <laughs> very good very good right anyway uh back to the serious matter at hand um how does a boy born and raised in australia get involved in snow sports um
0: but i suppose uh like with like with most things i think if you're if you're a kid and your family is um involved in in a particular sport in you're sort of just surrounded by that community I guess you kind of you fall into it um, so I was fortunate enough to have parents who although they weren't you know really big time skiers themselves they they thought it was like a, a fun family holiday activity that we could do uh, when I was growing up so myself and my uh, my brother and my sister and my mom and dad would I'd go up to the the Alps in in Victoria um down down south of Australia and um and yeah I just started out with just kind of I mean I was a terrible skier when I when I really sort of started and I thought I wanted to be a mogul skier, that was probably when I was like thirteen years old. And up until that point I'd I'd done some, you know, bit of ski school here and there, the occasional weekend or one week a year or something like that. And and um had never really taken it that seriously. But um, like you, I'd watched the – I saw moguls for the first time when I watched the 2006 Winter Olympics um, where we actually had uh, an Australian – well, Canadian-Australian, but um, Dale Becksmith was representing Australia uh, at those games and, and ended up winning the event with, to me, what is still one of the greatest runs of all time. Uh, and just watching that was kind of the the point that that turned it from like a – you know, just the hobby that I would do with my family once a year to something that was, was, you know, a, a deep rooted passion. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of roughly how I fell into it.
1: Uh, yeah. So I think skiing is an interesting one, um, but particularly in moguls, you got those flip elements and there's a sort of freestyle part. So at what point in your training do you suddenly go, right, rather than just go down the hill, I'm going to suddenly implement, the flips or the slightly more freestyle stuff because obviously at that point it's, it, at the initial stage you first do that it's obviously quite a dangerous thing to do so we well how did that sort of fall in
0: um yeah i mean i suppose it's it's like well for starters we've actually it's these days it's pretty um it's it's made much safer than what it was probably you know back back when people first started flipping on the snow uh these days we have series of kind of build up um, progressions that you have to you have to check off before you can go to the next level until you ultimately get to invert on snow. Um, so those are you start with like gymnastics, mostly trampoline work. Um, you get used to the feeling of going upside down, and then you take that and you take it onto um, water amps, which I, I briefly mentioned before, where we we have these, it's like summer training for us where we we do quite a lot of it actually. Um, so we have these big ramps and they're, we have this brand new facility in Queensland actually, which is just sublime. Like We love it. Um, but yeah, it's, it's big ramps into a pool, usually with a bubble system to break the surface tension on the water uh, where we can practice any tricks that our heart desires. Um, so you, you go from from trampoline to water amp, and then ultimately to snow. And by the time, if you know, usually you you have to have completed a certain number. I can't remember what it is uh, on water before you can then take it to snow. Okay. And by the time you've done, by the time you've done that, it's just it's just you know, it feels automatic. Like it, it's you, you you don't even second guess it. For me, back when I first did it, it was a little bit of a different story. I, I kind of I kind of did it without. Um, without any coaches present I was just really really eager to to get going with it so <laughs> me and a couple of mates uh went and found a jump and, and decided that we were going to figure out how to do it ourselves and um and then yeah we, we waited for like we, we tried to still make it as safe as we could we waited for a day where there was some fresh snow and the landing was nice and soft so we kind of reduced our chance of hurting ourselves um mm. and then and then and then we just went for it. But you, that's actually really funny that you you've brought that up just then because you just reminded me what happened to me at training today and it was, I, had, I had I did something today that I don't think I've ever done on snow in my life I was I was coming down the top section and about to about to uh, enter the transition and go off the top jump and I just I don't know what happened I caught I got a snow snake or something like I just caught this edge and then just started like slowly tipping over as i was going up the transition of the jump and then i i I just it's like i just froze i didn't know what to do i was kind of falling this way but i was supposed to be flipping and twisting to the left and i was falling to the right and then i just took off and i just froze and then i was upside down i was like oh no i'm gonna land on my head (laughs) i just like had to pull in with every ounce of effort that i had and managed to just get it around and land on my stomach which was um not the most dignified thing I've ever done in a mobile course.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> after,
0: no. after my coaches realised I was I was okay, a <laughs> little chuckle, I think.
1: <laughs> yeah, God, I mean, but, I, uh, I think I think for anyone who doesn't do that sort of sport, whole idea that sounds, frightening and dreadful. Um, <laughs> just I think I take it takes so much for me psychologically to go on any of those kind of ramps. Um, but obviously, once you're used to it, it's just second nature. But I think from an outsider, it just seems like such a mental thing to do. Um, I'm quite interested, actually, you mentioned the, the water ramps before. So are you in full ski? You're on skis when you do it?
0: Yeah, so generally what we do is, um, I mean, most people will just use skis from the season before that they had on snow. Um, once they kind of pass their use by date for, for use on snow, you take your old ski gear uh, and then you usually wear, depending on where you are in the world. Sometimes it's a wetsuit. Sometimes like if you're in Queensland, like our new facility, we have the luxury of wearing board shorts, which is pretty nice. Um, so yeah, so we, yeah, we, have, we have all of our old gear um, that we've used from the season before. And then, yeah, you just make sure you're protected. You've got your helmet, your life jacket, um, obviously swimming with heavy ski equipment on presents a bit of a problem. So life jacket just kind of makes sure that <laughs> nothing untoward happens to us when, we, when we're in the water. Um, and then, yeah, you, you, it's, it's actually a really safe environment. It's, and it's, it's a really fun environment and progressive environment because you sort of, you know, once, once you take off the jump, you, you, all you're going to do is land on water. And the worst thing that could really happen to you is, is you potentially wind yourself. So, um, yeah, it's, it's actually, it's, a, it's a great place to, to progress and, and, and work on new skills.
1: Yeah, well, fantastic. And I think that's... Uh, I think I kind of stand a bit more, maybe how people get involved in the sport, the fact you have that slow into integration rather than just go for the jumps. So that is quite yeah. interesting. I think we had, we had this conversation a few weeks ago with a previous guest I had, um, who was an Olympic uh, bobsteller uh, from GB, and he was saying... Uh, well, we were both saying how I think they've done such a great job in winter sports in recent years about making it really cool. Um, and I'm not quite yeah. sure whose idea that was and sort of how that happened if it's a coincidence but you've got the olympics i think every four years and then in the gap you have the winter olympics which is basically just like a big party from the outside and everything's (laughs) pretty cool so you've got uh it's little things like you've got your wear like the goggles which have uh, got reflective visors and the more elaborate and colorful seems to be the better uh You've got obviously the cool, the cool like ski jackets. You've got um, I don't know how, but like even like the bobsledders and like spandex still manage to make it look pretty cool. Um, they just think about it's, I don't know. It's just it's, it becomes this kind of really everyone wants to be a skier or a snowboarder or an ice skater in that like month period from all around the world. Imagine if you're watching it in in on a beach in a beach in South Africa and you see like that you, you want to do that because it's something about it just being so i, I don't know just yeah cool and interesting i suppose
0: yeah i mean i, I suppose i suppose being inside that the community maybe i'm a little bit insulated from from that like I, I i wasn't aware that it was kind of yeah perceived that well on the on the global stage but um but yeah, I suppose yeah, they, they do. We're pretty lucky with yeah, obviously the the sports that most winter sports require. I guess quite a lot of equipment relative to potentially your average um, summer sport uh, where it's you know, mostly just the athlete rocks up with their body and <laughs> that's what they've got. Um, so yeah, we're pretty lucky, I suppose, in terms of in terms of the the, the gear that we get. And I suppose that we, especially when you go to your first Olympics, that's a a pretty Exciting thing um, for for a lot of people is when when you do get your your team kit and and it's you know branded up in Australia or Canada or whichever country you're representing. Um, and then yeah, we've got all the yeah, we're lucky enough to have great sponsors. Um, like I've got uh, like my skis from ID One in Japan and 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 um, yeah, boots from from Dalbello in Italy and goggles from Oakley in the US. Like it's kind of it's it's all over the world and, and we've got pretty great, um, product suppliers and, and the industry itself is, is this kind of really tight knit community, which is, which is great. It's kind of, it's just, it, it just grows together. I think.
1: Yeah. So it's, it's interesting because in the UK, bluntly, no one really cares that much about skiing for most of the, <laughs> most of the time. <laughs> it's probably the same in Australia. Well, yeah. And, and to fair, it's the same probably for, at least half of the world, I imagine. Um, yeah, possibly. You've got, obviously you've got a lot of Northern Europe, um, parts of Asia, and then obviously North America. Um, but a lot of the other countries is very much uh, an obscure thing. But despite that, it just gets these massive audience numbers when it comes to Winter Olympics. And yeah. people probably don't follow like your career too much throughout the year, unless you're like, a particular fan of moguls or skiing. But like, if you have a good Winter Olympics, you can become a major name in sport in general. In especially in this country, sure, same in Australia, because it's just it just becomes this like media circus every four years.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's it's funny actually. You do, um, you you kind of do get that sense, like even from from where I am, like uh, there there is an enormous amount of hype for that couple of weeks every four years um, when the Winter Olympics are on, and and. I suppose if you if you're an athlete that that is you know really hoping to to make a name for yourself and, and leverage that in terms of um yeah, monetizing your position as an athlete and things like that i think it's kind of it's an opportunity to to really kind of state you know or um, you know state your claim so to speak or like you know make make um make an appearance on the global stage and kind of get yourself out there. Uh, And then, you know, for the four years in, in between, it's kind of, I suppose suppose we sort of fade into relative obscurity, (laughs) you might say.
1: But yeah, no, yeah. That's generally interesting though, because there's so many athletes who, I, I suppose in many ways it's quite nice. I don't know how you feel about it, but to have, to be a celebrity for that period of time, but then to be able to have your own private life and, um, even even if you were to win the gold medal uh in a couple of years or a year's time actually even if you were to win a gold medal there for example you you would still have that good mix i think of being sort of commercially viable um being able to make money in the sport have that celebrity have that fame but also have quite opportunities to have a private life and which, was, which is obviously quite unique in many sports
0: yeah yeah i think so um like okay. A good example is is like my teammate actually Mac Graham. He got he got silver at the last Olympics in Korea, um, and yeah, like he's he's pretty much been able to do exactly what you just described. Like he, he's in a position where um, he can um, yeah he's commercially viable for for potential sponsors and things like that. But at the same time, he can also go to his favorite local cafe with his girlfriend and and worry about being recognised. You know, it's um, it's kind of, I guess, the best of both worlds, and in, in that sense, you can you can enjoy both um, and still live a relatively normal life outside of sport.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, which I think, which I think for many people is probably the dream. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so actually, I was having a conversation with a friend the other day, and he he's been listening to the podcast, and he said I've somewhat deviated from uh the initial scope for this series of podcasts is all about injuries and injury prevention and recovery which uh which is a shame but in your case um we're not short on talking points when it comes to injuries and perhaps how you deal with those sort of injuries so there's two major incidents uh, one involves your back one involves your acl so if we first speak about uh, that back injury you had in 2014-15 uh just give me a bit of background behind that and kind of how you recovered from that
0: um yeah so 2014 i uh, unfortunately had uh, i think it was mostly an overuse injury which was um bulging discs uh between l4 l5 and l5 s1 of my lumbar spine and um yeah ultimately i i, I think it what it really stemmed from was um when i started uh, the year before that uh, i i gotten myself onto the Australian national team. And, um, as you kind of get higher up the, the spectrum, um, in terms of, uh, like team levels and athlete status, your training load, uh, increases as a a result of that and the intensity for that, for that matter. Uh, so I mentally was, was prepared and, and ready to do whatever I felt, was necessary and, and whatever my, my coaches, um, kind of required of me to, to achieve what I was hoping to achieve in the lead up to those 2014 games in Sochi. Uh, and unfortunately I think just being young and, and inexperienced as an athlete, I, I kind of, I think it's quite common for a lot of athletes actually. Um, but basically you just push yourself past the point of, of what is sensible, um, and you, and you don't, you don't listen to your body and you, and you don't recover properly and you don't, um, yeah, if you've got like a little, a little niggle here and there, you sort of, you sort of just tell yourself, well, you know, I'll just ignore it and I'll just train through it and, and, you know, I'll be right. I'll come good. Um, but ultimately, uh, what I learned from that is that is not the way to, to approach body management. And, um, yeah, unfortunately that, that kind of culminated with me being, um, on the course that week, uh, leading up to the games in Sochi, and and just feeling like I could I could barely move. You know, I was kind of I was I was just his lower back, such a central part of the body. Like you just use it so much, and then especially in a sport like mogul skiing, it's it's just so pivotal. Um, and it and it really takes a lot of load each time you you impact one of those moguls. Um, and then again, each time you land a jump, it's it's just this repeated impact uh, so many times each run. And then, you know, so many runs each day and then so many days that you're training throughout the year, it just kind of, it builds up. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a, uh, a an unfortunate learning experience for me. Um, but uh, I, sp- I suppose one that, that has stayed with me at least for my career up to now where I've, you know, I've hopefully become a much more intelligent athlete and learn to listen to my body when it's telling me it needs a <laughs> breather.
1: <laughs> yeah, no. And it's a, it's a classic one. And it's a common theme with quite a lot of my guests and myself as well, regarding my, my i got this long sand hip injury, which was the inspiration behind this pod and yeah. these injuries never go away. If you just leave them. And what's interesting, I think for a lot of people I know and, and myself is we all know it's the wrong thing to do. So if you if you were to give someone advice, someone asks you advice, you'd always tell them, "Oh, you know, if you've got an injury, go and see a professional, take a break, take do the rehab, whatever it takes to get back. You know, you'll be back stronger next time." And I, I myself have known this for the last you know ten years, but it didn't stop me playing on through injury. It hasn't stopped me not um, not taking breaks, not seeking professional advice when I should do, or having professional advice but ignoring it. But just despite knowing it's the wrong thing to do we still bloody do it <laughs>
0: yeah i, th- I think yeah, it, I it, it it is really frustrating it's probably like my kind of you know, i'm speculating here but my kind of the thesis behind that is most athletes are i guess inherently competitive and that competitive drive will um i suppose in a lot of those cases succeed above all else like yeah, whether it's self-preservation instincts or whatever else it may be, you sort of when when you are, you know, for for me in any in any particular training session, especially the hard training sessions, all I'm thinking about is really hard uh, efforts on the on the watt bike. Yeah, um, you know, I'm, that, those are generally pretty excruciating, and, and all I'm really thinking about to get myself through that is the next major event that I that I've got coming up, and and I'm imagining my other competitors and, and what they might be doing with their you know, training time that they've got in between the last event and the next one. Um, yeah. And so I think, I think whilst it, it's a strength for a lot of athletes to have that uh, internal drive and, and that motivation to be able to inflict, I guess a certain amount of pain on themselves. Um, unfortunately it often can, if overdone, or if not um, monitored, it can lead to our undoing in some ways.
1: Yeah, um and I suppose I think also it's a little bit about fear about perhaps um, like the unknown. So it'll be in different levels. So in your case, we're talking about top level, top level of elite sport and the Olympics, and for me, it's obviously a much lower level, but. the same principle so you know in the lead up to Sochi 2014 you don't know if there's going to be enough opportunity to go to the olympics um you don't know if there's going to be a you're going to be in a better shape in four years time or eight years time so it's a bit like you know if you stop if you keep going you know you can compete at maybe only a fraction of your full ability but you can compete whereas if you pull out now you don't know you've got another chance you don't know you've got another year in the sport or you never know. So I think sometimes to be of that as well, like while you've got the opportunity, no matter what shape your body's in, you just keep going for it. And I mean, I think that's, I think that's a big, big thing for me. It's at a lower level, but a big driving factor behind playing on, I think.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. Um, yeah. That actually probably that, that segues pretty nicely into that other major entry that you mentioned before my, my ACL, um, Yeah, doing like it was it was a really just a, a random event and it wasn't it wasn't a major crash or anything like that but i just i landed a jump and and just annihilated my knee for whatever reason um and it was at that point in time i think it was five and a half months out from when i was supposed to be competing at the the olympics in korea and you know most people that do an ACL will tell you that you, you know, a, a standard recovery will take anywhere from, I don't know, roughly nine, nine to 12 months um, if you want to do it properly. Um, and there are cases where people accelerate it, which is, you know, what I decided to do. Um, and ultimately I kind of, I paid the price for that, but um, just kind of what you were saying there was, you know, like it's, I, th- I think the only reason that I did, uh, take so much risk in in um, you know doing such an accelerated rehab after having after having the uh, the hamstring graft surgery um, was because it was the Olympics. You know, it's 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 once every four years, it's the pinnacle event in our sport. And you're right, like there's that fear of well, you know, this might be my last Olympics or this just you know I don't know what's going to happen another four years down the the line and, and, you know, this is to my mind, like how I justified it to myself was, this is the only event that it's worth taking this level of risk on for. Um, But, you know, other people, other athletes in, in different sports, like it's, you know, it's the same for everyone, regardless of their level of sport, they've got, they've got something that they're fixated on and they've got something that they're completely motivated by and internally driven to um, succeed at. And if there's that risk that they might not get to even make an appearance there, it's, that's something that is, um, I suppose like pretty frightening for a lot of athletes. So it's, it's, it's a really difficult situation there where you've, where you've got, you know, (laughs) doing what's smart and sensible and maybe just, doing something in in the the necessary amount of time that your body needs in order to recover properly and yeah. you know taking on a lot of risk and and putting yourself in a potentially uh, precarious situation
1: <laughs> well yeah and and you made it all the way to to the actual olympics itself you flew to korea is right and you were in the you're in the camp and you were, i believe you know more or less prepared to line up until the very last minute when you pulled out Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah. so where, to, where to start with that really how about do you think you'd have made a different decision perhaps if it was four years earlier and it was your first olympics
0: oh that's an interesting question um no never asked me that question <laughs> <laughs> um
1: get okay, right, it's, to, it's, the, right to the it's facts difficult. on this podcast
0: yeah yeah right to the nitty-gritty stuff um I, I suppose it's, it's difficult for me to say um, accurately whether or not I would have, but I'm inclined to think that I probably would have, but at the same time, there's, <laughs> there's that chance. Like, so what I'm thinking about here is my, like a big part of my reasoning for um, taking the risk prior to 2018 was because at that point in time, I was I was in the kind of theoretical prime of of my mogul skiing career as a male mogul skier. Um, yeah. That age that I was at was was sort of you know, r- roughly coincided with with where I was supposed to be peaking. And and you know I had like I had World Cup podiums in in the season prior to and and I was feeling like I was really skiing well um, prior to hurting myself. So I because of that I you know I wanted to take that risk and, and um, yeah, I thought that it was worth it in career. And yeah, so maybe, I mean, Sochi, I was, I was, you know, really fresh on the scene. My best result was a seventh at world championships um, in 2013, um, the year before. And other than that, I'd I'd had a couple of finals appearances on world cup here and there, but, but nothing really significant. So maybe at that point in time maybe I, I could have made a more sensible decision and thought it's all right i can i can forego this and and get myself to um 2018 instead but but at the same time you know like i just said it's, it's the olympics it's one of those things that's you've dreamt about it your whole your whole life just about you've yeah you know, that's 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 the peak motivator um in everything that you that that you do up until that point, so yeah, it's it's a tough question to answer. Well, yeah, I know it's it's a tough <laughs> one, and it's
1: it's hypothetical, and I'm sure you could rationalise both answers, so um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's that's fine. Yeah. Uh, but I've said it. So you made you made it to the to the actual olympic You were there. What sort of, What sort of methods were you using to try and to try and compete? Were you using uh, Were you on painkillers and cortisol and what, what sort of uh, methods are using or are we just going pure uh hope for the best how's it going uh,
0: um so yeah so with the accelerator rehab i did like i had a um, the, the major issue that i had, had uh with it was um actually just swelling in the knee which you know ultimately is your knee telling you that it's it's kind of you're pushing it a little bit too hard too fast mm. um which generally meant that I was I was uh, having quite a few um, anti-inflammatories uh, throughout the course of that, that lead up, trying to just kind of you know, manage it as best I could. But also a lot of um, icing and compression and um, it, any trick that I could use to, to basically make sure the knee wasn't reacting heaps and, and try and, and try and keep that reactivity level down as much as possible um, and it was working quite well actually so I, I was I'd skied on snow um, for I'd sk- I'd had like a pre-olympic camp in Colorado um, where I met up with the team uh, my first time since still my knee and um, I'd gotten to a point where I was doing uh, like we call like a a full run in mobile skiing a top to bottom. Um, so I got to the point where I was doing top to bottoms and, you know, they were like, not my best, um, but I was getting significantly better each day. And my confidence was growing a lot each day as well. Um, as I just got used to being in that environment again, and my body got used to handling those loads again. Um, which ultimately meant that, you know, I was, so I went to Korea with the team and, and I felt like I was, I was kind of in a position to do um, reasonably well. Um, my, my, the course was actually really, really difficult at those Olympics in Korea. Like they made the course builders had made it particularly challenging. And you know, even all the top guys were, were saying like, it was really tricky and you could see in the level of competition. out yeah, and, and it was, it was all sorts of stuff happening in the course. Um, and I'd gotten to a point on training on the, the last day of training um, before the, the qualifications where I, I did my last run and and I decided to give it a little bit of a nudge and um, and just sort of you know just to know that when it came down to it in the actual event've I've got that kind of higher capacity um, back and I can and I can do it when I need to so I did that and and I watched the run and I was I was pretty happy with it like I, I was considering the situation and um, you know I, I still was lacking quite a bit of strength and power and the kind of the more finer movements that you need um for mobile skiing but but i think i'd done a fairly good job of like just kind of covering it up and and i was skiing pretty fast and pretty clean and and so i put myself like relatively competitive with that run um so i went to bed the night before qualifications feeling feeling pretty comfortable and pretty confident uh, and then Usually uh, on a competition day, you get um, like a period of training time before you actually do the run. And I was on my, I usually do two training runs before qualifications. And I was uh, three quarters of the way down the course on my second training run. So I was, I was, I'd almost made it. Uh, I was about two bumps up from the bottom jump and I hit uh, just this kind of nasty, sharp little mogul and just a, a bit of an awkward way and felt something just pop in my knee and And um, I didn't know, yeah, I didn't know what it was, but I I knew it wasn't good because immediately the pain levels just spiked like really high. Uh, So I went off to jump, I landed pretty much on one leg and skied down. And and, um, yeah, at that point I was was really worried, Uh, didn't know what I'd done, didn't have access to a scan or anything like that where we could kind of see what was going on. so the one thing I did have was this, at this Olympics, they, they had given us two qualification days and they were a couple of days apart. So I knew I couldn't ski right after doing that on the day. Um, and then I thought to myself, well, I can, I can, I've got like two days where I can basically rest it and try and recover it as best I can. And then I can come out a couple of days later and, and do it then. Yeah. um so tried to do that and um got back to the got back to the team accommodation that night and it was it just blew up like a balloon like it was just it was really aggravated um so kind of did everything i could with the team physio and we were just you know trying to trying to manage as best we could and two days later i went out put my skis on tried to um get out, get out there and and on my first training run, I tried to, you know, ski down the course and I just <laughs> had a really bad time. Like I, I lost all the stability in, in that leg. Um it was just so puffy and, and there was such pain. Um and it was also I just had so much strapping tape on it, like I could barely bend the thing, yeah. which is kind of important for mobile skiing. And um yeah, ultimately I I, I kind of pulled out to the side of the course and slid down. And um, yeah, unfortunately realized that I uh, wasn't going to be able to um, compete at those games, which was a bit of a bummer, but um, anyway, a few years down the track now and feeling much healthier again now and looking forward to these next ones in, in China next year.
1: <laughs> well, yeah, exactly. And it's, you know, you've had, you've had two injury ridden Olympics so far, but, like we mentioned earlier, there is always another event, and I think as an athlete, you can get tied down to thinking this is my last chance, this is my only chance. But hopefully, it all end up well in the end. Uh, so, what what sort of support did you have from the Australian Olympic Committee and the skiing committee throughout that whole process? Were they very much like it's up to you, what you want to do, or was there pressure for you to perhaps step aside and let someone else compete? Or um, what did do they want? Were they trying to rush you one way or the other, or were they very supportive in general?
0: Um, no, they were really supportive. So, yeah, I, that was one thing I felt really fortunate to have was, um, especially the the Olympic Winter Institute of Australia, who who um, I'm a contracted athlete with. Uh, they basically were there every step of the way from the moment I first hurt my knee. Um, in in 2017, any time um, any time there was a particularly important uh, event that needed to be um, attended, like if it was me when I first got home and I had to go see the surgeon, um, my physio was was there with me, helping me helping me through the decision process and talking about the costs and the benefits of various avenues that we could have taken, um, and then you know the the entire the entire um, rehab. Process was was, I was really closely managed. Like I, you know, on a daily basis, I had someone to work with, which I was you know, really fortunate to have. And um, and ultimately, when I made the decision that I wanted to do the accelerated rehab, they supported me one hundred percent. Because um, in mobile scheme the way it works is, uh, you in terms of Olympic qualification, so each country can send a maximum of four athletes per gender per nation. Um, and so we, I actually qualified my spot in the season prior, um, cause I'd had enough yep. good results, um, that I'd earned that spot for Australia. And the, our team basically says, if, if you earn that spot for the country, you earn that spot for yourself, essentially. Um, so yeah, I, I was, I felt, I felt, you know, really lucky to have that kind of like really solid base of support around me and, um everyone was was on the same page and we were all on board and we were all working towards this 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 single objective of of getting me there. Um and yeah, we were really close. It just we missed it by that much. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, that's fantastic. And we've alluded to on previous episodes the idea of having that multiple um like management team, so the MDT team. So you've got your doctors, physios, and Um, the way everyone worked around it to get athletes back in one piece and so quickly. But you've now got 2014 and 2018 in the rearview mirror. As you mentioned, you're very much focused on 2022 and those Winter Olympics in Beijing. Uh, But but how has your whole process changed following those injuries in terms of the way you train, perhaps the way you recover, any sort of um, different approaches and different sort of perhaps methods to keep you on track um
0: yeah so there's there's a number of things uh that I've picked up along the way that that um have made a difference one of the biggest ones actually was with, with with my back and it still it helps with my knee too um uh yoga so I'd gotten to the point with my back after 2014 where where I tried so many different things uh, tried pilates and seen so many different physios and tried to tried to get myself back to a point of, of not being in you know pain 24 7 um and i i was just at the point where i was i'd gotten to the point where i was like yeah if, if i can't get rid of this pain that i've always got then there's no point in me even trying to keep skiing moguls because it's it's just going to flare it up even more. Um, so I'd gotten to this point where I was actually almost on the, on the verge of of just giving up and quitting the sport, um, instead of like just wallowing away and trying to let my back settle down. But um, but one of our other Winter Olympians, um, Lydia Larsala had had a similar issue to me and found um, this yoga practitioner um, near where I live in Melbourne uh, who, who's just a, like, like in every sense of the word, a guru, like just, just this, this, this really unique character who who just has such such a, a, a unbelievable understanding of the human body and how it functions. And um, she, I, would gotten to this point where I was kind of uh, this was my last resort, and she'd give me his contact details, and I went to see him, and um, and just for an assessment and and he sort of had me run through a couple of movements here and there and and just from watching me move you know it seemed like he could tell me every injury that I've ever had you know he could, he could see the way my body was patterned uh, patterning and and the way it was moving and functioning and he was he was just yeah he was able to to see the um, movement in a different way and and anyway so I, I, I tried um I decided to try a couple of sessions with him and immediately after my first session i I walked out of there and was like and and like had a significant improvement the first real improvement that i'd had for months and i was like wow this is this is something here i did my first session with him um and and got this significant improvement like immediately it was it, it really i was taken aback by it i couldn't believe that i'd actually you know reduced the pain levels um in just just with one session by so much. And so I started going um, every well six days a week, two hours a day. And, and, and um, yeah, it was just absolutely hooked on, on, well, mostly just on feeling better, you know, progressively getting better and better each, each time I went. Um, but then ultimately, you know, got really kind of into yoga as well. And, and this type of yoga that, that i learned from him has has proved to be, so successful and so helpful for all the all the skiers in our team actually um we generally often have similar problem areas since we're doing the same sport and and have the same impact going through us Um, so it's actually something that we've incorporated into our training as a team now um to sort of make sure that we're we're managing our bodies as best we can and and each day we go out and beat ourselves up in motor course, we come back in and we try and we try and iron out a few of the kinks that <laughs> we've developed throughout the training sessions. Um, so, yeah, that's, um, that's that's a major one that, that I've learned um, over yeah, my, my uh, career as something that that's just so uh, restorative and can just aid in recovery so much. Um, probably the other major one is just as you get older as an athlete, you just start to learn that you know you can't do maybe as many runs as you used to, <laughs> or you can't do as many jumps as, as some of the young guys in the team, or you, know, you just you just start being a bit more sensible around around load management. And um, you know, when when ultimately you know you're the driver of your own body. So when you get to the point where you feel like okay, this is probably you know, my body's saying just back off and that's that's you're done for the day i've just had to kind of learn to um to accept that more than i used to when i was younger i used to find that really hard these days i'm getting better at it but sometimes still maybe not not quite as disciplined
1: as i should be <laughs> yeah no, well, i don't think any of us are disciplined as we probably should be i think yeah. <laughs> uh I suppose, yeah, it's interesting that whole um load management side of things is that done purely with um your own thought process or is it driven by stats and sports science because obviously a lot of sports nowadays particularly olympic sports um and i'm referring more from my knowledge of how like gb programs work but so much of it's now done on um you know monitoring heart rates and monitoring uh distances and it's all done on graphs and you can only do so many miles a week and if you do too many miles then you've got to have this much time off and it's all very like stats based you know blood samples is that kind of how you guys approach it with the winter sports in Australia or is it much more about just how your body feels
0: um so when when we're back home and we're doing a lot more strength and conditioning based um training then yes it would be quite a bit more um stats based and and our our um trainers and and our physios will be will be monitoring that pretty closely and then when we're when we're on snow it's um i guess it's just a bit more difficult to to kind of have access to those to those means when when we're out in in sort of elements that we're in so um we do track our numbers in terms of run numbers and jump numbers and and we we collect all of that data over over all of our training camps and over the year and Um, it's a good reference point for us, but, but ultimately for me, you know, for me, and I think for, for most of the other athletes, it's, um, it's sort of, yeah, it's, it's self-managed. Um, but you also, you work in conjunction with, with, um, your coach and, and your physio, um, who's here as well. And, and you sort of, you just talk through those things together. When we're actually on snow, it's probably more down to individual um management based off of feel and also just working with your coach and your physio um, to and you communicate uh as best you can in terms of in terms of what you're feeling and how your body's responding to training load and um we we mostly manage it that way these days uh, so ultimately it's it's kind of up to up to me if i if i feel like i'm you know feeling particularly fresh one day and and the course conditions are are not too too, um, heavy on the body, then, then I can go out and I can probably increase the, the run numbers. Um, but you know, on the other side of that, if it's, if it's really heavy impact one day, um, and my body's maybe feeling a bit beaten up, then, then I've just got to keep that in mind and let the physio know and let my coach know and be like, okay, I'll probably just ease off a little bit here and, and try and save myself for, for the next day on snow
1: yeah um yeah great and i think i think that's important as well because sometimes we do get a little bit bogged down with the numbers and the and the stats and the data and i mean there is still an element for personal um thought process when it comes to being an athlete and perhaps taking your own leadership in some of those roles uh but you did mention their strength and conditioning and working back in australia when you can't be on the snow which uh which is a great segue into the the next subject of um said how you train away from snow so uh thanks for that you should do a you should do your own podcast as very professional (laughs) what um what what we understand is and it's it's interesting you you don't do probably as much as what's it if we took a footballer for example um footballers spend hours and hours every day kicking a football uh throughout the year whereas you spend uh more of your time not on a mountain doing the moguls you spend a lot of time doing other stuff so how do you tailor your strength and conditioning training in order to improve your knee strength to maintain your back strength and to prepare you as best as possible to do the sport you're not currently doing
0: <laughs> um, yeah, that's the that's the million dollar question um i think it's it's something that we uh, we continually try and um, work out and we, we're, we're updating our training um, on an ongoing basis in terms of the, the the things that we do in the gym to try and replicate that that uh, impact and that loading that we would have on snow. Um, one of the more unique ones that we do that uh, people often find quite strange is we do this uh, exercise on a trampoline. It's called Brissard's, named after um, Jean-Luc Brissard, who was one of the the greatest motor skiers um of all time and um he used to do this thing where you, you basically you're on the trampoline and and you just imagine your upper body stays completely still like, as if you're on a conveyor belt and um and you just pump your legs up and down as as hard and as fast as you can and we do like uh, different different length intervals of it um and describing it doesn't really Sort of do it justice how much it really hurts. That's probably the single most painful thing that we do <laughs> in the <laughs> gym training. I was like, it's, um, it's, I don't know, you might be able to find a video on, on Instagram. I can send one, I can send you one if you want. Um, it's, yeah, no, it's, I'll be good. It's, um, it's, it's like, so usually we would do anywhere from um, 15 second to 30 second efforts. A mobile run usually takes. Yeah, roughly 20 to 25 seconds. Um, so depending on the time of year um, where we are in our training calendar, we'll do different length intervals, but those 30 second ones, they just hurt like hell. Like it is, it's genuine agony. Um, it, 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 it fills your legs with um, lactic acid more than, more than like any, anything else that then I could possibly do. Yeah. It's a particularly challenging exercise and it, and it's good because it simulates um to some extent the the sort of the motor control of mobile skiing as well, the, you know, we, we, um, you do have to, uh, absorb and extend and, and do it at speed. And you have to do it with the lateral movement component as well. And, and weight shifts and pressure and things like that. So it's, um, in terms of specificity, that's one of the better exercises that we do. Um, other than that, we, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of squats, it's a lot of bike and a lot of running, um we do because there uh is a lot of um uh forces going, so like multi-directional forces in the sport where core is particularly important for us to train. Um so lots of um core training in in, in multi directional uh ways and um and yeah, overall it's um you you have to be you have to be as a mobile skier, like it's it's you wanna be light but powerful so you know great power to weight and you want to be able to move quickly um yeah which uh actually as a mogul skier i'm probably yeah you know, on the bigger side Um <laughs> most mogul skiers are quite a bit shorter than me and don't work quite as much as i do so maybe that's uh got something to do with my injury history as well but uh <laughs> I, I could just be speculating there <laughs> <laughs>
1: well, i didn't want to say but um <laughs> <laughs> That was, that was going through my mind. Um, <laughs> okay, so I suppose just one, one more real key question on the skiing side before we start to round up. I'm quite interested. So you're at the top of the hill. Um, it's an Olympic Games or a World Cup or any, any sort of any sort of event, but you're at the top of the hill. You're staring down the course. You've got the jumps in front of you and the, and the moguls themselves and stuff. In those few seconds before you're given the permission to start your run what's going for your mind at that, at that moment?
0: Um, so I, I guess everyone's got their own pre-com routine, but for me, um, though, when I'm actually in this start gate and I know I've only got a few seconds before the starter's going to, going to give me the go ahead. Um, I actually, at that point in time, try and shift my focus completely external. So I'm usually, um, Taking note of what the weather conditions are like, I'm usually looking out, kind of over the over the resort or the valley or wherever the course is. Um, I'm looking to see what the what the clouds are doing, what the wind is doing. Is there snow coming down? Is is it blue sky? Where's the shade on the course? I'm sort of looking for all of those things, like all those cues that um, you know I need to know um, to have uh, just basically on call so that I can respond to them in the moment when. I'm actually in the course so um yeah prior to prior to actually moving into the start gate i'll um i'll do all of my visualization and my like my internal thinking i'll oh I'll, I'll run over i'll go over my run multiple times in my head and just really try and feel it out but yeah when i get when i actually get into the start gate it it completely shifts to the external and um i'm not i'm not thinking about I'm not really thinking about anything um, other than, you know, what's the course like in front of me and what do I have to do um, in light of that? You know, so what's, what's the, yeah. is that so the, the course actually changes changes quite a lot with traffic um, so the more people that ski it generally the, the more challenging it gets um, okay so I'll be I'll, I'll be taking note of you know, how how rutted up are the moguls um, are the jumps scraped or are the, have they not been kept very well um, are they slippery is it is, is the snow is the is my ski going fast off the snow today or is it is it a bit grippier based off the temperature and things like that um, so it's all those things i'm just thinking about that um but generally i just yeah i'll be up there kind of lightly process that stuff take a few deep breaths and and then once once they um give me the go-ahead i kind of it's more just get excited than anything else just push out and it's um motor skiing is a sport where you get the course to yourself for from the from the moment you push out until the moment you cross the finish line so it's kind of you know all eyes on you and it's a bit of a a bit of a performance in, in that respect. Um, so yeah, so you push out and, um, yeah, it's, it's at that, at that point you've got the course to yourself and, and moguls is is a a bit of a performance, um, in that sense, you know, you're sort of, you are being judged on your performance. So the moment you push out, all you're really thinking is I'm going to, I'm going to try and make this look and feel as good as, as I possibly can and try and dazzle the judges with with what I've got um but yeah on a a more like um like uh strategic level um I probably should have mentioned this before really like you think about the specific it, it it helps when you don't think about the the run overall um if you if you think if you think about the run overall, it can kind of be this this kind of like this big daunting task in front of you to get from the top of the course to the bottom without making a mistake and and doing everything perfectly. Um, whereas if you break it up into the key sections of the run that um, that are really, really important, then you know it's it's all you all you're really doing is a series of um check boxes on the way down the run. So, you know, usually those key parts are the entry into the top jump and making sure you get a nice takeoff the execution on the top jump the landing and the exit um so when you enter the middle section um that's a really important part of the run where the judges are going to take you know note of i guess how commanding you are as a skier what what your skill level is um so doing that and then if there's particular turns here and there that are really tricky or sharp or or long or big or you know mo, no no mo, no two mobile courses are the same. It's it can be quite idiosyncratic in that way um so taking note of those turns where you where you've got to ski it a little bit differently than the other moguls um and then approach the bottom jump and the bottom jump so yeah I, i think about those i i like section it up mentally um and then it's it's just checking the boxes as i go down the run
1: yeah great and it's uh that was gonna be my final question, but you've uh, you've prompted one more actually. So <laughs> I'm quite I'm quite interested in so you're doing you're doing a run and you've obviously had some success, particularly in the World Cups. So you've been in that position before where you've got to do something to win a medal. And the guy goes down in front of you and he nails some mad trick. Um, and you know full well the routine you planned probably wouldn't be enough for you to get that medal do you then have like a more extreme backup option or perhaps an easier option some do you sometimes find yourself going oh, i need to risk it all and go for a harder trick to nail it or are you pretty locked in what you're going to do before the event um
0: so for me personally i'm i'm usually pretty locked in i've got a pretty comfortable idea of my game plan what i'm going to do and I, and I try not to shift the focus on to what other people are doing uh too much i'm more just kind of ski to my own my own game plan um but there are athletes out there i know who for instance um the best guy in the sport michael kingsbury he's is absolutely one of the most dominant dominant athletes in the history of sport not just mobile skiing but just sport generally like he, he is he got a couple of Guinness world records this year, I think for world cup number of world cup victories and and the like. Um, He's the kind of guy that he usually qualifies in first and, and in finals you go reverse order. So he's the last to drop um, in finals and he likes that kind of thing, you know, like he likes um, knowing what everyone in front of him has done and then hearing the scores and then strategizing. He also has a very vast bag of tricks that he can choose from as well. So, um, that kind of plays in plays into his his strengths quite a lot. Um, yeah. But he's one of those he's one of those super talented athletes who can basically on demand um, you know, conjure up whatever whatever run with whatever tricks he wants.
1: Okay, so to finish uh, certainly well the main, the major part of this interview, just give me perhaps one or maybe two of the real highlights from your career so far.
0: Ooh um I, I suppose uh well i mean olympics is is a big one for sure first olympics even though it was yeah like such wasn't i was in quite a lot of pain when i was there i was still really taken in the experience and and just that that uh that whole two weeks that you're there it just feels like you're not even on in the real world you know like it's just that you're on another planet um <laughs> nothing nothing's quite quite like it um so that is is a big one and um probably the first time i ever got on the world cup party in, in which was actually in Deer valley where i'm going to next week um in in the Jewels event there in in 2017 um that was another one too because because have my team around and um you know it was just duels is such a it's a great um uh, like yeah, modification to the sport of mobile skiing we actually race each other side by side down the mobile course and it's just from the crowd's perspective it's just so exciting to watch and yeah, you know, we 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 are right on the edge um from the moment we push out of the start gate to the moment we hopefully cross the finish line so <laughs> um yeah so doing it in, in that event under lights just a massive crowd of people and in, in the in the bowl down the bottom there and down the bottom of the course and just so much hype around it um yeah that was a that was a particularly memorable moment for me as well in my career
1: nice um i have, I have seen a few clips of you doing various competitions in the lead up to this on youtube and i think uh, uh i'm not sure that particular one was there but i've seen a few of you nail when you won a few of your podiums and stuff so that was a uh, that was uh was pretty impressive and you're right i think just sometimes you forget when these winter sports that like you get those big crowds down the bottom because on the actual mm. run you haven't got like crowds side by side when you're doing the event but when you get on the bottom it's yeah. a bit of that sort of carnival atmosphere which must be quite uh quite cool particularly in those particularly in america i imagine in canada
0: yeah Gen- generally in the u.s they're pretty you know they love they love sporting events or so they love any kind of event. So you generally get a, like that that event is kind Of we call it like the super bowl of uh of mogul skiing. Um, yeah, if you've got some time on your hands, I definitely recommend going on YouTube and and searching Deer Valley dual moguls and um seeing what you find. It's it's usually pretty exciting to watch.
1: I will uh, I will definitely do that as soon as we're uh, since we finish here. So, so that's the end of the uh, the sort of the formal part of the interview with the. The questions regarding your career. So to finish off, I do always give my guests an opportunity to talk about anything they fancy in this section I call any other business. Is there anything that springs to mind for you?
0: Um probably, probably not in particular. Um if you want to know, if you want to learn more about me, you can find me on social media um at Brody Summers on Instagram and uh Brody Summers Athlete on Facebook. That's where I share most of my local skiing related stuff. Um other than that, that's about
1: it. Yeah, great. You know, I have um, I have checked both of them out, and I would recommend all listeners to do so because there is some uh, interesting stuff. And like I alluded to earlier on, winter sports are quite cool. So when you're sat, when you're sat at your lunch break at work and you're you're staring at like a slightly lukewarm cup of tea, and everything seems a bit down. When you see someone doing some cool cool backflips <laughs> into snow wearing funky Oakley glasses, it is a it's a nice little pick me up. I find
0: <laughs> uh, you start you, you got you got to do it with coffee instead of tea. That's oh, where you're yeah. going wrong.
1: No, that is where i going wrong. I don't drink. I don't drink <laughs> either. So it was just a hypothetical scenario. But that's... you're a Brit, <laughs> you,
0: you you don't drink tea. Wow.
1: I don't drink tea or coffee. No, I've uh, I defy the conventions of being British.
0: Wow. Seriously, <laughs> is there a reason for that, or you just don't like the taste?
1: Uh, well, I never particularly, I never particularly liked the taste as a kid, and then I started getting into it. You know, when I was a teenager. That sounds like I'm talking about like hard drugs, and it? But I started <laughs> I started to I get mean, into the coffee tea.
0: Camping.
1: Yeah, I started to get on the tea and the uh, get the high of that. And then I um, but no, then I, I just sort of I wasn't particularly enjoying it and I thought there's not many massive health benefits to it. So I just didn't really bother now now I now the fact I'm not already addicted to it, I don't see the point in doing so, so I've avoided it. But fair um, enough. But yeah, so I'm that guy who they offered tea or coffee to, and I respond with like squash or water. Or something like <laughs> so. it's I'm no, it's probably I'm no fun at a party.
0: Oh, it's probably good for your finances. I sp- I spend way too much money on coffee. I've got, I've got a, a real problem with that stuff. So. <laughs>
1: oh yeah, well yeah, that's nice, that's another benefit. So I've uh, haven't got haven't got the habit. Yeah. Um, okay, so all that all that leads me to say is just uh, thanks for thanks for joining me. Uh, so unfortunately, the internet wasn't as great as uh, we were hoping for, but there's still some great content in there. And I'm sure uh, the listeners would agree. Um, but yeah, so thanks a lot and good luck for the rest of the season.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for having me on, Curtis. Um, yeah, sorry for the for the internet issues. Um, yeah, remote parts of the world, ski resorts and all and all that. <laughs> <It's>, um, <laughs> sometimes you make the best with what you got. But um, yeah, thanks for having me on the show. I really enjoyed the chat.
1: Finland is supposedly home to the cleanest air in Europe, the world's best education system and the happiest people. However, it certainly isn't home to the world's best Wi-Fi connection. I'm going to let you all in on a little behind the scenes fact This episode actually took over two hours to record and that is due to the constant loss of signal and this well-polished article which has just graced your ears has resulted from many hours of frantic editing on my part but I hope it was worth it. Maybe one day Brody can join me for another snow-themed quiz uh, without the constant need for questions to be repeated and perhaps that could be Snowy me, snowy new, aha. For those of you who are counting, that is indeed the hat trick of snow themed puns for this week's episode. Brodie's revelation of snow in Australia got me thinking of how interesting it is the stereotypes we have for certain countries and how wrong it feels when you see images that contradict that. The Australian example is a good one. The homeland of Crocodile Dundee should not contain ski lifts and hot chocolate. A great, another great example is in Russia. I remember watching the World Cup in 2018, which was hosted by Russia. My mental image of Russia is of long Cold War style coats, furry ear covering hats, and dolls with progressively smaller dolls inside. But when watching that World Cup, I was reminded oh, wait. They have beaches, they have beautiful architecture, and I mean, well, well, they they still have smaller dolls inside of larger dolls. Uh, But it seems strange to have rain in Zimbabwe, snow in Beijing and sun in Manchester just doesn't seem quite right. Head over to Instagram and go to at Brodie Summers, that's B-R-O-D-I-E-S-U-M-M-E-R-S to follow Brodie's journey towards the Olympics next year. And also visit at hips underscore and underscore dips to give us a follow for more content from all of my guests, new competitions and exciting announcements. Some interesting COVID statistics for you now. According to stats published by Our World in Data, 0.52 people per hundred are getting offered a vaccine each day in the uk which is quite an amazing thought interestingly chile top of that graph with 1.37 per hundred people and other notable countries include france with 0.3 the us with 0.67 canada with 0.21 and trading behind is germany with 0.27 Overall, as of the 10th of March 2021, 24.41 million doses of the COVID-19 vaccine have been given in the UK, and that is compared to 46.64 million for the whole of the rest of the EU combined, which provides real hope of some form of normality here in the UK this summer. A lot of recognition should be given to staff and volunteers who have facilitated this mass vaccination programme. A special recognition should go to my own mother, Um, especially as this week was Mothering Sunday. My mum, Liz Mansfield, got herself qualified to administer vaccines during the pandemic, and so she has spent her recent weekends administering hundreds of doses to residents across South London, as well as performing her role in the GP receptionist during the week. So thank you to her and all the amazing mums around the world who are really helping to get the world out of this predicament we're in. So all that leaves me to say is stay grateful, stay different, and as always, stay safe.